We'll work it out. Well, good morning. Um, this, this should be interesting. Um, we're starting a new series today on the Trinity. And uh, you can see our, uh, we've got some artists who've done some really beautiful artwork. However, I'm not particularly good with the software yet. And so the idea of changing fonts from white to black is yet escaping me. It may or may not be visible depending on the repair work that they did out there. So I hope you won't have to chase me too much through the Bible, but you can focus up there, but you may have to really squint really closely. Let me ask you a question, though, to start with. If there's one thing in life that you could get right, what would that be? If there was one thing in life that you could get right, what would that be? Now, some of you I know are thinking um, the lottery. you can do better, aim higher. That's not what we're talking about this morning. Some of you are thinking about choosing the right college or career, or marrying the right person, marrying at all, um, being a great parent. You remember what Jesus said, right, in answer to this kind of question. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them who was a lawyer asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. So the thing Jesus says you want to get right is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And what's interesting is if you were to look In Mark's telling of this interaction, in Mark chapter 12, there's a little insertion. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus this question, which commandment's the most important at all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And when Mark tells this account, he he underscores for us that before Jesus cites the great commandment, he cites this foundational truth about God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Maybe... Maybe there's something even more important, let's say more foundational, than loving God. And that would be knowing what God is like. And in in particular here, Jesus cites knowing and believing that God is one. And of course, in a series called The Trinity... This is where things start to get a little tricky. Because if you read virtually any of the ancient or even contemporary uh, doctrinal statements, statements of belief of the church, this is the kind of language you find. This is from the Athanasian Creed. It says the Catholic, Catholic with a small c just means universal. The Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Okay. You advance to modern day. If you're in a, one of our life change classes on theology for the everyday believer, you're studying the New City Catechism. 
asks the question, how many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. If you opened up to your North Wake Church doctrinal statement, you find that we believe that the Godhead exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that these three are one God and are worthy of precisely the same confidence, obedience, and worship. So God is one, and we worship the Trinity. Right. It sounds like really bad math, doesn't it? Um, It's a little tricky to sort it out, but it just may be, according to Jesus, the one great thing that you need to get right. For instance, let's go back to that ancient creed called the Athanasian Creed. Look at how it starts. Whosoever will be saved, before all things, it's necessary that he hold the Catholic or universal faith. Which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, so you better get this straight is what he's saying. Without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic or universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. It's pretty serious stuff. He's saying, mess up the Trinity, and without doubt, you shall perish everlastingly. St. Augustine is purported to have said, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. If you try to explain the Trinity, you shall lose your mind. (laughs) Michael Reeves, in his delightful book called The Lighting in the Trinity, says, The Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief. The truth that shapes and beautifies all others. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking. The source of all that is good in Christianity. The vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. It would seem then that this is the thing. This is is one of those things that we better get right. The problem is we often don't. Even in our best attempts to not to get it right, we often don't. Um, the Trinity often has been, there have been different analogies ex- trying to explain the Trinity, how the one could be three and the three could be one. Um, and thinkers no less than Augustine, uh, one, one of the best and brightest ever, have suggested that the Trinity is almost like a romance. Um, that it can be likened to a loving relationship. You have the lover, who is the father. You have the beloved, who is the son. And you have the love that exists between them. That's the spirit. It has its appeal, but the problem is the spirit is now not a person. The spirit's a quality, love. And the spirit is a person, according to the scriptures, as we'll see as we walk through this series. Even, even if we miss the minefield of misunderstanding the, the, the Trinity, we, we probably even more often miss its importance. Um, Robin Perry says, for many Christians, the Trinity has become something akin to their appendix. 
It's there, but they're not sure what its function is. They get by in life without it doing very much, and if they had to have it removed, they wouldn't be too distressed. Okay? One writer put it this way. He says, the Trinity was a doctrine we might never have had if a bunch of theologians a long time ago had had girlfriends. Um, and, and our detractors, right? People who oppose Christianity are quick to seize on the befuddlement we have about this crucial doctrine that is the centerpiece of our faith. For instance, the Quran says, say not Trinity, desist. It will be better for you. For God is one God, glory be to him, for exalted is he above having a son. Say instead, he, Allah, is one. Allah is he on whom we depend. He begets not, nor is he begotten, and none is like him. Islam is quick to deny the Trinity. So in light of all these things, the misunderstandings and, and confusion and the importance of this, our elders um, have deemed it wise for us to get this right, this foundational teaching about who God is, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So over the next month or so, we'll be studying uh, the Trinity. It would be a great time to be praying for your pastor. Um, this, is, this is a minefield. And I, I generally vacillate from stepping on a mine over here to stepping on a mine over here with the hopes that by Sunday morning, I'm avoiding the majority of them. Some of you are thinking, oh, great, we're going to study the Trinity. I think I'll sleep in for the next month. Um, because when you think about the Trinity, you think of a study that looks like this. Um, does anybody recognize this? Does anybody know what that is? It's Ben and Jerry's hazed and confused ice cream. We're not going to study the Trinity like that, okay? We'll do it. We'll look at the ingredients a little bit. But, but we want to study the Trinity like this, okay? Or, or like, like this, or even like this, okay? We, the, the, the purpose here is not just to dissect the Trinity and leave it dead on the operating table. It is, it is for us to learn how to delight in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all that that means for us. Michael Reeves expresses the aim of our study beautifully when he writes in his book. He says, this study then will, will simply be about growing in our enjoyment of God and seeing how God's triune being makes all his ways beautiful. It's our chance to taste and see that the Lord is good. To have your heart won and your soul refreshed. For it is only when you grasp what it means for God to be a trinity that you can really sense the beauty, the overflowing kindness, the heart-grabbing loveliness of God. If the trinity were something, we could shave off God. We would not be relieving him of some irksome weight. We would be shearing him of precisely what is so delightful about him. For God is triune and it is as triune that he is so good 
and desirable. So if you would, let's bow and pray and ask God to show us the glory of who he is as we begin this study together. Father, we ask mercy. This is beyond our little mind's grasp. That you are one God and yet three persons. Holy Trinity. There's something mysterious about it. There's something beautiful about it. I pray that you would give us minds to grasp it and hearts to delight in it and voices to share it, the best of news, that this is our God whom we love and serve. So help us now by your word and by your spirit, we pray in the name of the Son, Jesus, amen. Okay, the the teaching about God as Trinity usually involves Three propositions or three truths. First, God is one. Second, God exists in three persons. You can tell we're going to have our hands full. And third, the three persons are each fully God. We'll be looking at these ideas as well as spending time teaching just about the Father and the Son and the Spirit as we go through this study. But today, what we want to focus on is that very first proposition. God is one. Um, When Jesus answered the scribe's question, remember, and he said, the most important commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's actually quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. He's quoting Moses. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses wrote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, seminary folk will call this passage in Deuteronomy the Shema. It's the Hebrew word for that first word there, hear. They, they call it that because they paid a lot of money to learn Hebrew and they got to use it somehow. Okay? And for a lot of them like me, this is about all they remember from Hebrew is Shema. And, and you have to realize, doesn't it sound way cooler to say we're studying the Shema than we're studying the hear? So that's why uh, they, they call it that. Um, but when they... When they talk about that, this is what they're talking about. This is what's referred to as the Shema. Um, And observant Jews considered the Shema to be the most important part of the prayer service in Judaism. And they would repeat it twice daily, in the morning and in the evening, every single day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's traditional for Jews to endeavor to make the Shema their last words that they would ever speak. And parents teach their children to say this before they go to sleep at night. Jesus here embraces this teaching as the foundational truth about God that undergirds the greatest of commands, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We really need to get this right. Okay. So what does it mean especially if we teach 
that we are Trinitarian. We believe in that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do we mean then when we say God is one? And I'd like to just unwrap three angles on that, that the, the Bible runs with this idea that God is one. So God is one, obviously. That means there's only one God. He is not many gods. Um, and this is a vivid contrast. Back when Moses was traveling with God's people about to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan, the people who inhabited that land in Deuteronomy were the Canaanites. Um, they were not worshipers of one God, monotheists, if you want to learn a new word. They were polytheists. They worshiped many gods. Um, in my research on, online, I could not find a number for how many gods the Canaanites worshiped. The, part, the partial list I saw listed 28 gods by name. They had lots and lots of gods, but not Israel. Israel was to worship the one true God. Time and time again, God's people are called to worship the one true God and Him alone. Uh, later in Deuteronomy, Moses would write, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. Isaiah echoed this theme in Isaiah 44. Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah echoed this a lot. Next chapter in 45, he says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who, who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and the Savior. There is none besides me. Just one God. Paul in 1 Timothy says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There, there really is the consistent teaching of the Bible from cover to cover is that there really is only one true God. And so this is radically exclusive. Okay? It has ramifications. Do you believe this? Do you believe that there is one true God, as the Bible teaches? If you do, then you are forever closing the door on religions that embrace multiple gods, polytheism, or religions that would say, for instance, that God is in everything in his creation, pantheism. If you believe that there is one true God, then those religions are off the table for you. You, you, will, not, you will not embrace them. You are saying that Hinduism, which by some counts may have 330 million gods. Okay. Um, we're saying Hinduism can't be true. It cannot be true. It's not just another option. Now, now some will say that Hinduism has a main god, Brahman. And these 330 million lesser gods are simply ways to him or emanations from him. Or Hinduism is hard for me to get my hands around. 330 million anything is hard to get my hands around. But even, in, in, even if you grant Hinduism that, Brahman and Yahweh are very different. Brahman is unknowable and impersonal. And here, in this verse in Deuteronomy, God reveals himself as 
as Yahweh. In your Bibles, a lot of times, unfortunately, it's just L-O-R-D, capital letters. Whenever you see L-O-R-D in capital letters, they are substituting that for the name of God, which is Yahweh. He is personal. He has a name, and he wants you to know it. He wants you to know him. So Jesus teaches us, as he quotes Moses, that God is one and only one, not 28 gods, not 330 million gods. We worship Yahweh, the one true God. Jesus and Moses and Isaiah and Samuel and Paul and James shut the door for us on Hinduism and all other polytheistic religions that worship many gods and all other pantheistic religions that think God is just part of the warp and woof of his creation. He's everywhere. So if you travel to Asia, you study abroad, you work internationally, and say you go to India and you begin to love the people there as you should and love the culture there as you should, You cannot embrace Hinduism. You cannot. Because you have confessed, as Moses confessed, as Jesus confessed, as we confess, that the Lord our God is one. Not not many. And this is not just true for you. This is just not how you think about God. This is the truth about God for every person on the planet. And so that's why we have half a dozen North Wake families right now living in India. Because somebody has to explain to them that God is not millions. He's one. And so six of our families now labor and live amongst the Hindus there in India. And some of you will join them. Some of you will realize that this truth is so important that you cannot know God's love and love God in return unless you get this. And you're going to be willing to go. Somewhere in Asia, where they don't know this, no one has told them, no one has shown them that God is one. So God is one. He is not many. That's the first sense that God is one means. But there's another sense to it. God is one. He is unique. Think, he's the one and only. No one like him. He is unique. He is supreme is part of the emphasis of this. Um, Again, Scripture just oozes this all over the place, all the way back in Exodus, right? Moses says, be it as you say so that you may know that there's no one like the Lord our God. No one. Um, Psalm 86, there's none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. Jeremiah gets in on it. There's none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there's none like you. God is unique. He's one of a kind. He's supreme. And if he's the greatest of all gods, then he deserves our greatest allegiance. This is why, when we go back to what Jesus taught in Mark 12, before he answers... That the greatest commandment is you shall love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He starts with, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
It's the foundation. If he's one of a kind, unique and supreme amongst all gods, to him our wholehearted devotion and trust is due. We don't hedge our bets. Okay? We're not like uh, Homer Simpson. I never thought I would quote Homer Simpson, but it's like Homer Simpson who when he thought he would die cried out this prayer in desperation. Jesus, Allah, Buddha, I love you all. No, no, okay? There's one God. He's supreme. We trust him alone, okay? Not, not God, the one God and some lesser gods. We don't divide our loves or our trust or our loyalty. This is part of the beauty and the responsibility of believing and confessing that there is one God. Sam Albury writes about the Shema that Jesus quotes, saying, the observation that God is one is not incidental to what follows the command to love. It's the grounds for it. The Lord our God is one, therefore we are to love him with all that we are and all that we have. His oneness and the totality of our love for him are tightly bound together. If God were anything other than one, we would not need to love him with our all. Then he says someone doing two jobs part-time could not be expected to give the entirety of their working life to one of their two bosses, could he? But God's oneness means he deserves our everything. As the first commandment puts it, you shall have no other gods before me. If we say God is one, as Jesus, Jesus is teaching us, then we are confessing that he is one of a kind, uniquely supreme in all of creation. There is none like him, and we bow down before him alone and worship. We will not hope in or trust in or worship or serve any little g-gods. We will not hope in or trust or worship or serve any idols or any created thing. Again, that new city catechism that y'all are studying in your, in your classes um, says, what is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. So we don't trust in our coffee for our joy, okay? We don't trust in our money for our security. We don't trust in our oils for our courage. We don't trust in our TV for our peace or our car or our clothes for our significance. We trust in God. We're God worshipers. We don't make little idols to do what only God can do. Instead, we enjoy these things, but we look for satisfaction deep down in here in the God who is one, the one and only God. And we decline any other offers to satisfy. They cannot compete. This is why we follow God's path for our marriages when it's hard. This is why we follow God's wisdom for how to use our money. We are generous. We do not hoard. It cannot satisfy. So, do you confess that the Lord our God, the Lord is one? If you do, then you are saying, He is the one, the only one I will worship and serve, hope in and trust in and seek satisfaction from. I will love Him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. 
Now, there's a third way to think about oneness that the Bible brings out, at least a third way, I suppose. Um, God is one. He's a unity. He's not divided. Um, And this really is pointing us towards the second of those three propositions about the Trinity, that God exists in three persons. So we'll be talking a lot more about this in the weeks that are ahead. But there are hints way back at the beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament that the God who is one has always been in harmonious relationship, has always been in community. God has never been alone. It's real interesting the language that happens in Genesis from times to time, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's us? I think it makes best sense to say that it's the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Genesis 3, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Who's the us who knows good and evil? It's the triune God. Isaiah, and this one's a little tricky, so listen close. Isaiah 48 says, Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. And what's interesting about this is the the way the speakers and the pronouns work. And now we're going to step into ingredients just a little bit. But it's, it's really an interesting way Isaiah talks about God here. He says... Um, From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. That's the first person who speaks in the place of God. There's a person who's always been. And now the Lord God, another person than the person who's always been, has sent me, the first person who's always been. So the Lord God has sent another person who has always been eternally existent. He has sent me And his spirit. We have another person. So what we have in this kind of complicated conversation that is going on here is we have three individuals existing together. The one speaking who states that he was from there, he was there from before time. But he also refers to the Lord, to God, and states that both Yahweh and the spirit have sent me. Three distinct persons are working in unity to share the work of one God. You pick up on this same kind of unity amongst the persons of the Trinity in the New Testament. Where um, Jesus, the Son, in Matthew 28, as we saw just a couple weeks ago, he welcomes worship. Jesus meets the women after he's resurrected, greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Who gets worship? God gets worship. And if you were to look at the book of Acts, which we'll study later this year, um, in chapter 5, some people lied about a real estate deal, bad idea. And Peter says to them, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So he lied to the Holy Spirit. 
It says, while it remained um, unsold, did it not remain in your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Who have you lied to? To God. Who have you lied to? The Holy Spirit. They're interchangeable. The Holy Spirit is treated as God. And then there's this indivisible unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, the Son, in John 6, says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's one God. He's unified. And then a little later in John, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. So the Holy Spirit is happily sent by the Father and obeys him and teaches the teaching of the Son. The Trinity is a unity. They're one. Somebody said, it's not like one of these boy bands where every once in a while one of the team members is going off recording a solo album on their own and then coming back. No, the Trinity is always together. They're always one. They're always a unity. These three persons who share the single essence of God are always one, always in unity. And significantly, this is the basis for our unity. In John 17, Jesus is praying what's called his great high priestly prayer. It's beautiful. And in John 17, he says, I do not ask, Father, for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, Jesus says, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now that can make your head spin a little bit, but the idea is that as the Father and the Son are one in this particular passage, we are to be one. And that the watching world gets the Trinity because they watch us. Okay? They believe that God is one because they watch the way we are one. Okay? The way we forgive grudges and wrongs. The way we care for one another. What's one of the great apologetics for the fact that our God is one? The way we're one. That's kind of scary. You better be reconciled. Stop with the grudges. Stop with unforgiveness. Do you see what's at stake? The world is not going to sort out the Trinity by comparing it to a shamrock or to ice, water, and, and vapor. Helpful as those crude analogies are, they're going to get it because they watch us. They're going to say, if those folks are one, then their God must be one. Do you confess and believe that the Lord our God, the Lord is one? If you do, then you must lay aside lesser gods and the false hopes of the idols you're making. 
the things you're hoping in. You must rescue those who have fallen prey to the lie of many gods. We must go to the nations with this message. We must worship and serve the one true God who's supreme and love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We must be one, even as the three are one, so that the world may know. Let me invite you to bow in prayer. Let's confess together that God is one. Father, it makes a bit more sense to us now why Jesus said what he said, quoted what he quoted, why he began by saying the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Help us to believe that, to confess it, to let it order our lives, to let it order our friendships in this room. To let it shape our, our loves and our hope and our trust, where we run for satisfaction deep down in here. Father, have mercy upon us. Jesus, the Son, have mercy upon us. Very Spirit of the living God, may you be merciful to us as the Word has its way in each of us. We do pray in the name of the three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.